Well, amen. That was good. Good to see everybody here, as, as I think uh, you all know, um, or many of you do. Pastor Taylor and his wife are, are, are taking a few days off um, and a uh, well-needed um, vacation here, and, uh, but he will be back with us next week. Uh, but we are uh, moving through the book of Matthew. And um, we are in Matthew. Um, we're going to be starting here in Matthew chapter 7. Now, um, what we've been looking at for a number of weeks here is, is the Sermon on the Mount. I think the last maybe seven or eight weeks we've been doing the Sermon on the Mount. And now we're getting to the very end of it. And uh, um, what we need to, I, I, I think if you look carefully at the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount um, was, was taught in various times in various formats in different Amount. You, it's not the kind of thing Jesus would um, you simply teach, preach, drop the mic, and, and kind of walk off into the wilderness, and you'll never hear it again. Uh, we have another account of a lot of it in Luke where he was um, not on the mount. He was elsewhere talking to uh, the, the disciples, and, and elsewhere he was, uh, you can see throughout Luke and Mark and the, other, the, the four Gospels, Jesus would teach the basic principles of it. And that's because um, this certainly is the ethos, the, um, the, the morality, if you want to put it that way, of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this is what uh, it's like to walk with Christ. Um, certainly the long-awaited king is here. He has brought with him his kingdom. The world's not going to be different than it ever has been before. Um, this is the promised messianic age that every prophet from Adam to Malachi looked to. It's also, among so many other things, the vindication of tr and the fulfillment of true Israel. And it's also that time when the only begotten Son of the Father, um, spoken of in Psalm 2, is installed on Mount Zion, and the nations of the earth are going to flock to the mountain of God. The Gentiles are going to start coming in so that they can be taught his ways and they can walk in his paths. And basically, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's the way of God in Christ. It's the path of God. It's the way the, way the, the, the believer is to walk. It's what faith in Jesus the King is supposed to look like. It's the faithfulness, if you want to put it, of faith. It's the practice of the kingdom. And it is really the best evidence of saving and growing grace in the believer's life. It begins with the Beatitudes. We know them well. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about how you had to start at that foundation. Everything, the one qualification to get into the kingdom is you don't deserve it and you know it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the humble, the merciful, the pure in heart. Blessed are those when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness and identifying with Christ. That's a blessing. And be glad because that's how he treated the, uh, the prophets of old. And... Then you'll also have, you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a mark of the kingdom of heaven. And so after he gives those, the, the great blessings, he, he sort of opens the, the instruction um, with, um, in 517. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. 
I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Everything that comes afterwards is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then two and a half late, uh, chapters later, we saw this last week, he finishes instructions, his instruction in chapter 7, verse 12. And he said, therefore, in everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And I think within the Sermon on the Mount, it is a sermon, um, that, that is sort of the, uh, the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. I did not come to in any way um, deny the law and the prophets. I'm going to come to fulfill it. And if anybody teaches anything other than that, they're at least in the kingdom of heaven, this new thing coming. And then he ends with it. Hey, it's all summed up. And treat others as you'd want them to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. We call it the golden rule. But although the sermon begins with the promise of blessings, it ends with a very sober warning, a woe. And we're introduced to the, and we were introduced to this sober warning last, uh, last week when it talked about entering the narrow gate, um, Romans 7, verses 13 and 14. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And Pastor Taylor talked about last week how the few there, probably reference the, the, literally the remnant, the, the very few that were going to accept the gospel um, in Jesus' day. Jesus is the narrow gate. He is the hard way. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Two gates, two ways, two destinations, Two groups, life or destruction, heaven or hell. The world does not like that offering. They want to say there's a whole lot of ways. Jesus says the whole lot of ways just funnel into this big wide gate right here. The writer of Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a lot of ways that seem right to men, but they lead to death. And then a thousand years later, the apostle Peter preaches. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is the great offense of the gospel. It's not Christ, it's Christ alone. And so that contrast is going to continue in our text today in which Jesus really kind of expounds the narrow and the wide gates, the hard and the easy ways. So, if you'll stand with me, we're going to pray, and then we're going to read our text for the day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our prayer is always that we are enlightened, and not only enlightened, but energized to obey. And so, wherever we are with you, we all fall short of the grace, and so wherever we are, we want to be convicted um, to um, continue to press into Christ. Give us the comforts of your word. Give us the exhortations of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the, that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and does not do them would be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Amen. Church, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. This is the word of God. Um, uh, and this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. You know, someone said this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount was the perfect sermon. Um, very applicable. A lot of good illustrations. It gets your attentions, and it's only 17 and a half minutes long. They go, well, that's a great prayer sermon. Well, that was Jesus. You know, Jesus illustrates the woe, the woe of the wide gate, if you want to put it that way, and the broad way with three more of these contrasts. We're going to see a number of them here. And clearly this section um, has a lot of clear references to the first century. Jesus is talking to Israel and, and their rejection of him. Uh, the whole idea of false prophets, the fruitfulness of Israel, the prophesying, the casting out of demons, the miracles, the denying the law and teaching others to do so also, the wise and the foolish, the destruction of the house, which is probably a, an allusion to the temple by the rain, the floods, the wind. All of these are Old Testament prophetic markers for the judgments of God upon that nation. And, the, and they all kind of point to the few who would ultimately enter versus the many who would not, but the few that would enter the narrow gate at the time of our Lord's um, preaching. But it's also very much for us. Um, Romans chapter 11, verses 20, or 19 through 21, uh, Paul is writing the Romans, and they ask the question, well, listen, if this is all true, what about Israel? Why didn't they accept this? Because almost en masse, they, they, they just didn't do it. And Paul writes, then you're going to say, branches were broken off, talking about Israel, so that I might be grafted in, talking about the Gentiles. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So in the fear of the Lord, let us look at two warnings that Jesus gives us here in our text today. The first warning, he says, be very careful to whom we listen. Matthew 7.15 says, beware of the false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Look, I think every culture can appreciate the story of the wolf and the sheep. Uh, this is, it's, 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 I think it's just pretty universal. The insatiable, predatory wolves, they get in amongst the sheep, total destruction. The sheep have no ability to care for themselves. You don't just drive wolves off, you kill them if you can. The ramifications of the false prophecy of the prophets to the Apostle Paul and to the church that he, the church that he, um, uh, um, to Jesus and the Christians and later Paul and the churches um, were ultimately eternal. Ultimately, these spiritual wolves will tear to pieces the followers, their followers. Peter, 35 years later, um, is re reflecting upon this, and this is what he writes to a lot of Gentile churches. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people. Talking about back in the day. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly bring, to, bring in destructive heresies. They're secretly about this or you don't know what's happening. Even to ultimately denying the master who brought them, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. This is clearly no side issue. In fact, I think just about every book in the New Testament somewhere makes serious um, um, discussion of false teachers. Even in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul writes in Acts chapter 20. He says, and, and he's, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. He's getting ready to leave them. He's worked on the church for a year and a half. He's appointed elders. You know, he, 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 would, he, would, he often left, um, like he left uh, Timothy in Ephesus at another time. He left Titus in, in, in Crete. So they would appoint elders to teach good doctrine and refute those who would teach error. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, otherwise leadership within the church, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Paul would call them false apostles, deceitful workers. They teach another gospel. I think Jude would say you need to um, contend earnestly for the faith. All of John's letters refer to warnings to people who would come knocking at the church doors and were not of the way. And five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation all include warnings about false teaching in the, in the church. So we often ask, who are these false teachers? They usually in some way attack the person and the work of Christ. They attack the cross. They attack the resurrection. They attack his humanity. They attack his deity. They often attack the ethics of the kingdom that God doesn't care how we live. They mangle the truth of the gospel. They tend to exalt themselves. They seek to be honored and served rather than courting others. They exploit the, and they basically fleece the flock. They see ministry as a means of gain. They're not offended at the natural man. They do not see sin as the great problem and the cross as the great answer. They do not ultimately treat the word of God as the word of God. But I think in the context that we are given in the Sermon on the Mount is that they deny the narrow gate. They lead followers through the wide gate and what looks like the easy path. But they act like they're taking them down the narrow gate. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. 
No, you just go ahead and read it. Yeah, he, he, um, Jesus is talking there, and later he's rebuking uh, the, the, um, the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, um, uh, from people, for you do not enter it in yourselves, and you do not allow those who are entering to go in. They look a lot like the gatekeepers for the narrow way but they're actually leading people to slaughter through the wide gate. Make no mistake, they are very spiritually deadly. So the question is, how do we discern the wolf, the deceitful workman who appears as a messenger of light? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew um, verse uh, uh, 16, 7, 16. There we go. You're going to recognize them by the fruits are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can it a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. John the Baptist had said that earlier. The ax is coming to cut things down. It's certainly going to happen in their day. And it's ultimately thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. What is the fruit? Well, we know we've seen a lot of lists of the fruit of the, of, of the spirit of the kingdom. Paul has a number of lists there. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, was it faithfulness, um, gentleness, and self-control? We see the opposite of those fruits, so we kind of look at those and say, well, that's, what's the opposite? Of, it's called the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, hostilities, uh, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, heresies, envy, malice, drunkenness, carousing, and, and if we we're practicing these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But I think in this context, and this will all very much feel, be a part of that, obviously, but it's, the fruit is that they don't have the practice of the Sermon on the Mount. Do they proclaim? Do they push on to believers? Do they push believers towards the virtue that is the Sermon on the Mount, the narrow gate? Is their faith, the right, um, is, is, is their faith in Christ, who is the righteousness of God, and are they ultimately, are they living out that confession? And do they encourage the church to live out that confession? In other words, we can remember the Sermon on the Mount. Do they, do they have a passion for righteousness? Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do they seek the kingdom of heaven rather than the things and the worries of this life? Do they extend mercy and forgiveness? Do they teach others to be merciful in the forgiveness even as you want to? receive these things? Do they trust God in their worldly needs? Do they see and do they mourn the depths of knowing the destructive nature of immorality and anger? Not only in their works, in their deeds, staying away from adultery and that kind of thing, or, 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 or fighting and, and, and violence, but in their words, how they curse one another, speak of one another as a fool, kind and send to one another, but ultimately even in the thoughts of the inner man. Do they love the brethren? Do they love their neighbor? Do they love their enemies? Do they love those who persecute them? Are they peacemakers who seek the best for others and they would actually prefer loss to revenge? 
Do they seek the approval of God rather than the approval of man in their prayers, in their charity, and in their sacrifices? Do their prayers and labors reflect the continual asking, the continual seeking, the continual knocking that should be the heart of those who desire to enter the narrow gate? Does the golden rule have a growing presence in their lives? You know, even the golden rule, if we want to, we can twist it to our own benefit in the wrong way. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Sometimes we hear that. In everything, treat people the same way you want them to, uh, you want them to treat you so they will treat you that way or you will get what you want. But that's not the point of that. It's a, director only, it's a direction only about you. Treat the people in the same way that you want them to treat you, even though they don't and probably never will treat you that way because that is the grace God has given to you, asking nothing in return, and you've been blessed, and you're to be a blessing. So it's not a means to get something. Even the Gentiles know how to do something good to someone to get something. But is that the kind of presence they have in their lives? Jesus continues in Matthew 7, verses 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast demons in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then, uh, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart me, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. By the way, I, I hope you all know, Judas cast out demons. He would have been what we called a Christian, a believer. But he was full of envy. He was full of greed. He had other things going in his heart and his mind. Here's the fearful thing. The sheep ultimately become like their leaders. So this is one more of these exhortations why be careful who you listen to. Jesus said in another place, he said, the disciple is not above his teachers. After he has been trained, he's going to become like his teacher. We need to know our Bibles really, really well so we avoid the wrong kinds of teachers because eventually their judgment becomes our judgment. There are those who profess Jesus is Lord, but are instead, he says, workers of lawlessness. Now, this is the context of Jesus saying, everything I'm sharing you is the law and the prophets. And now these are those without that law and prophet. It's the opposite of what Jesus had been exhorting um, listeners to do. And it's got to be some of the saddest words spoken to people who in some way embrace the faith at some level, but were not sincere in it. I never knew you. Depart from me. So if the first warning is to take care to whom you listen, the second warning is be very careful how you listen. And that takes us to Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded upon the rock. 
And everyone who hears those words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You ever see those pictures of these terrible tornadoes that just land straight on the house and you just see the whole thing fly up or the flood come through and you just see houses just going down the river and the sense that the, the whole foundation of that life is now flooded and lost everything invested in i think um one of our brothers called last night uh, we put it on the prayer chain we have a family um that we've known for years here in the church that i think they attend a, a, another communion but they've been part of a lot of things we do and their whole house burned down uh, last night. I think it was the Bennett family. Um, and we want to definitely keep them in our prayers. But, but the, the, to see the, the house come down, it is great is the fall. Jesus and his word are absolutely inseparable. You cannot have Jesus without his word. And there is no word without having Jesus. He's the word made flesh, and his word is the rock. He's the rock, and his word is the rock. And that's this, this sort of blending of Jesus as the word and incarnation, and he's the word manifested. And ultimately, we as disciples, we are the flesh, we are humanity, trying to, in a sense, conform to the word. And that's what it means to conform to Jesus. Jesus says, if you abide in me, and I, my word abides in you. That's how this works. And so here's the final contrast. There's a man who builds his house wisely. There is a man who builds his house foolishly. The wise man builds on the rock, the foolish man on the sand. What is the difference? Especially since, in some ways, they really do look alike. Well, the wise man hears the words of Christ and does them. He hears the Sermon on the Mount, he sees the faith, and he sees the call to faithfulness. That's what the wise man does. The foolish man hears the words of Christ. And there it is. The Apostle Paul preached, he said, I, have, I preach only one foundation. There are a lot of other foundations that are going to be torched in that day, but there's one foundation, and it's Jesus Christ. And we don't have that foundation, one day the house falls. And really, we would just say, for every soul, what a tragedy for that soul. How great is the fall. A number of years later, James, the brother of Jesus, um, is writing. And his, his, his uh, epistle in the New Testament is often considered the, like the Proverbs of the New Testament, a lot of wisdom. And it's the one that shows the mo- it makes the most references to the actual ministry of Jesus. You'll get those elsewhere in Paul and elsewhere, but in Peter, but James has the most. You can definitely see whoever um, wrote this knows a lot, says a lot about, chooses to refer a lot to uh, the gospel stories. And his whole concern is this concern entering the narrow gate and hearing the word and being doers of it. And so he says, prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. 
That is our great temptation. He said, for those who do that, it's interesting, delude themselves, deceive themselves. And that is the great fear. I mean, that we, we live in an illusion because we hear and we hear and we hear, but we don't do, and yet we draw comfort from the hearing, and Jesus is trying to warn us off that. He tells us to be a hearer and, not, and, and a doer. If we're a hearer and not a doer, he says we're like a man who looks in a mirror and then he walks away and he immediately forgets the kind of person he was. Did I, did I get that on my hair? Did I get that thing out of my face? Did I, you know, breast my t- do I look right? Does it all come together? We're like people who look at the word. We come in here and we see who we are in Christ. And then when we're not doers, doing is the thing that solidifies it. It's called the authoring and the perfecting. It's the maturing of the faith. It's through the actions of doing the word of God. And so we walk out of here and we just kind of forget it. And by forgetting it, we see that we, we live in a way alien to it. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, this is called the law of liberty, and it abides in it and dwells within it. It says that he then becomes an effectual, he becomes effectual in all that he does. I think the apostle Peter talking about this says he becomes useful and he becomes fruitful. James says he becomes effectual in all that he does and he's blessed in all that he does. So church, we are called to enter the narrow gate. But we are also warned We are to take care to whom we listen, and we are to take care how we listen. We need to hear it, and we need to seek to do it. This is the narrow gate. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've called us to be effectual doers of your word, to indeed be useful in your kingdom to be fruitful in your kingdom. We ask that you encourage us, you strengthen us, you grace us to do these things. Give us a desire to know your word so we can discern to whom we should be listening to. Grace us also to hear that word and to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.